This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome, everybody. Leadership in action. That is us, Sirius XM's business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Yuseem, director of the Center for Leadership here. And I'm in the studio with my good friends and colleagues, Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein, who run the McNulty Leadership Program. Good evening, Ann, and good evening, Jeff. How are you? Oh, great, Mike. And it's wonderful to see you. Oh, it's great to see you. Jeff, how about you? You can say the same thing. It is great to see you, Thank Mike. you. Good, very good. <laughs> I can't tell you how good you look. Oh, this is excellent. I, I love this form of therapy. I'm feeling better already. All right, guys. Our topic tonight is diversity inclusion. It's a topic we're all thinking about. Uh, and before we get going with a guest who knows a lot about the, this, uh, this area, and I've got a question to warm us up on it. Tell me about the most diverse team you've ever served on or ever been a part of. Ooh. Oh, I can answer that. We're ready. All right. The University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton School. No, <laughs> I, no I'm quite sincere. One of, one, of my, uh, one of the things that I actually truly do love about being here is hmm. that when I walk down the halls, head to class... I might be on the escalator going from the first to the second floor, and there are languages and voices all around me. And I, at moments, feel like I'm at the UN, which I think is wonderful. So then to step into a classroom and to be working with groups of students in diverse teams, and Mike, you know, in, in, uh, in our foundation undergraduate course, we assign students to groups based on, um, you know, spreading on international yeah. and domestic yeah. and men and women and so on. So I, I really very much appreciate Excellent. that so about being here. And it feels a little bit like you're at the UN or at the does. Dubai International Airport. <laughs> <laughs> Such right. a mixing bowl that is. So Jeff, how about you? You're your most diverse team ever. You know, I, I think I'm probably pretty similar. I think the... Just walk out the door here. Yeah. You know, I, if I think back, I undergrad at Penn State, not not the most diverse place. Um, I've ever been a wonderful place, but not the most diverse place. And then throughout my career at AT&T, you know, some diversity. I was in um, uh, a, a two-year rotational program after my undergraduate. And, and that was a, probably the most diverse community that I had entered um, up to that stage of my life. We had... Probably professionals from eight or nine different countries, as well as from around the uh, U.S. and different, you know, race and eth- ethnic backgrounds. Um, and then I showed up at Wharton, and and you guys will remember when Walter Isaacson was here for the yes. launch of the McNulty Leadership Program. Right. The author of the book on Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, right. Ben Franklin, right. uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, but the the comment that he made to our students who were who were there as part of the celebration, he said, "You'll never again be." in as diverse a place as this one. Right. And, true. And that, that absolutely must be true. I mean, I think of everything from my my MBA learning team, right, which had, um, I think I had somebody from California, somebody from Carolina, Philippines, India, China, um, to my intramural hockey team. Um, <laughs> where four, four countries or something. Right. Well, yeah. And I think on the whole, when, when we had a certain combination of lines out, I was the only American out on the ice. I was also the least functional well, member of the team. That's also diversity. Some are really good. And... Uh, you know, but really, and then all the way through to the, yeah. you know, the different staff and faculty teams have been a part of here. Excellent. We're going to reverse the phrase or add the second phrase, okay. inclusion. So, Jeff, mm-hmm. beginning with you, what, did, what in your own experience here, extremely diverse student body, mm-hmm. MBA students especially you work with, what are some of the steps or maybe what is the step that you found best at making everybody pull together? Inclusion. Yeah, and, and we have a faculty member here, Rachel Arnett, who does just this kind of work. What are, <laughs> what are the ways that you can bring communities together? And um, what are the kinds of conversations or the kinds of dialogues which are really going to um, you know, connect people, right? And, and connect people in, in maybe a deeper way. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is the, the, the normal Wharton conversation, you know, where'd you come from? What were you doing? That doesn't get you very far, 
right? And um, probably, without you know, pointing fingers or naming names, we've all glazed over once or twice in that conversation where we've you know heard about yet another professional path. Um, but if you're revealing um, significant aspects of your cultural heritage or significant personal experiences, um, they are a way which um, bring people together within groups, right? And make them feel, remember, just a, uh, probably a month back, we had Amy Edmondson on the show mm-hmm. talking yeah. about the, the, the notion of psychological safety yep. as a way to really empower and engage team members. And, and again, her research would, would point to very similar um, practices as, as building that kind of inclusive engagement. Yeah. And well, I just yes, I I so appreciate the way you put that because in my head I often picture a resume and we know the resume. We have name, objective, professional experience, academic, personal. <laughs> and Hobby. basically hobbies. hobbies. And basically what you're saying is if you work from the bottom up <laughs> rather than from the top down, then uh, there's greater opportunity for connection um, connection with each other and and that is something that I know that we uh, are thoughtful about here and try to encourage. All right. Anne and Jeff, thank you for a great warm-up on our topic, uh, diversity saw, and inclusion. You see what he did there, right? He didn't answer either question. I know. <laughs> Mike is masterful hey, yeah. at that. And you that. see how fast he's going, too? He's <laughs> yeah. just, like, kind of rifling through. <laughs> right. or, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, you moving right to, along. You have somewhere to be? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. What are you? I'm just a slave of the clock. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> I'm just uh, the uh, anchor this evening. <laughs> Uh, like you can tell, I got a lot of respect. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Wanna, little, okay, well, with that, what we call feedback. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's just feedback. feedback. But, uh, yeah, you know, you, I already uh, you already answered my 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 answer, which is this place is pretty diverse. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and, and, and we do and things we to make. To it. Okay, good, very good. That all said, I'd like to bring a guest on the show now who knows a lot about this topic because she works on it, she's written it, uh, written upon it, and she has studied it. So, Jennifer Garcia Alonso, welcome to our Sirius XM radio program, Leadership in Action. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, let me just say uh, a couple more words about you, Jen, and then we're going to get into a, a dialogue. You work with uh, Boston Consulting Group, uh, often abbreviated to BCG. <clears throat> goes back probably 50 years now. Last time I looked, uh, BCG was probably in 50 countries around the world. And at BCG, you have been directly involved in thinking about diversity, inclusion, how to get beyond the lack of diversity, how to solve some of the problems that come with exclusion. In fact, you have recently authored a great uh, article. I've got it in front of me here, a report called Fixing the Flawed Approach to Diversity. So, uh, Jen, great to have you on the program. I'm going to get us going. And maybe just uh, almost a a general question about why diversity has become important for you and for BCG. Why why is that now considered a significant issue in the kind of work you do both internally and then with your clients around the world? Sure. So BCG as a strategic consulting firm really focuses on generating ideas and helping our clients achieve their full potential. And the only way that we can do that is by having innovative ideas and new ideas that we can bring to bear. And the best way to do that, we found, is through a series of diverse perspectives that we can bring around the table. So part of that, of course, is gender diversity, which is where I spend most of my time as the global director for uh, women at BCG. But that also um, extends into race and ethnicity and um, LGBTQ, as well as backgrounds of education, um, socioeconomic status, among a number of other things. And kind of getting that mix of ideas and backgrounds together really helps us move the needle, um, both internally and for our clients. Uh, Terrific. And Jen, let me ask, in terms of your own work now, I think it's partly coming out of what you're hearing from your clients. Uh, we've got these challenges. We need to think about it. Give us your best guidance on it. I think it's also partly coming out of your own internal concerns and how BCG operates as a private company. So just thinking about the impetus for what you've been doing, uh, to what extent is it externally driven or internally driven or some combination of both? Um 
I think it's really a combination of both. I mean, part of this is just we want the best talent, like raw talent, um, coming to us. So by definition, access to a larger pool of people means um, you're going to get better talent. So that's part of this. Um, of course, also, there's so much conversation now in the press and in the media around the importance of diversity and inclusion. It does become really important. Um, and so when we go out to our clients, it's something that they're very focused on. And part of what we wrote about in this report is we're spending so much time, we're spending so much effort, and we're investing so much money in this. Why aren't we seeing more progress? And that's a question that we've been kind of setting out to answer in the report and also really focused on um, internally. What are the sets of things that can really help us move the needle? And then to your point in your conversation earlier, how can we marry diversity and inclusion to make mm-hmm. sure that we're getting the benefits of both? Because they really do go hand in hand. Jen, um, so it really is kind of the, the marriage of both. Jen, I'm Ann Greenhall. It's really a pleasure to have a chance to talk to you about this topic. And I know we do want to move forward and talk about, you know, how to marry those two. But if I may, if I could go back, your background is really very interesting. If I have, mm. have it right, you you do have an MBA from the Wharton School in 2005. I, I believe that was the greatest class of <laughs> MBA students yeah. to ever grace I this campus. I forget what class Jeff was in. Yeah. I think it was 2005. Well, was it five? I yeah. think it was. Yeah. So, yeah, Jeff, it's amazing. I mean, yeah. not, not only, but here we have a guest from yeah. the greatest class <laughs> of MBA students to ever grace the whole. And I did, I'm not the only one who says that. I mean, Mike, you yeah. say it all the time. Uh, I, I, yeah, well, I, with reference to some year, yeah. uh, and uh, Jeff, in every class, I think there's a lot of diversity, right? So pulled their weight and uh, no. yeah and we uh, we uh, we rode Jen's co- coattails <laughs> okay sure. very good okay all right so Jen as I was back, saying back to you, our focus. you have you have an MBA and a master's degree in Spanish language and literature from Middlebury yes. and then yeah. a bachelor's degree in international economics from Georgetown University so can I'm just curious can you help me connect the dots how did what when you look back I'm sure it's it's linear, but what led you to the focus on gender diversity? And here you are now at BCG. So I would say it's only linear in hindsight. Um, right. At the time, it didn't feel really linear, but the interest and the seeds of the interest were always there. So when I went to uh, Georgetown, I went to the School of Foreign Service, and the ultimate goal at the time was actually to be a diplomat. Um, And I've always been sort of fascinated by this idea of difference and learning from others and what we can kind of gleam from other cultures. So that was sort of a key motivating factor for me in in going there. And when I was there, um, I took an amazing course actually called International Business Diplomacy, which really studied the impact of business on culture and on public policy. And that sort of drew my interest over to, um, to the business side of things. So actually, in between Georgetown and um, Middlebury, I went to investment banking, and I was an analyst on Wall Street for a couple years. And that, as you can imagine, um, I worked in M&A. I was in an analyst class within my particular M&A group of 11 um, recent graduates, of which I was the only woman. So that was sort of one of my first tastes of um, the importance of gender diversity in, in the workforce and sort of looking up at the time there weren't a ton of senior women as role models that I could sort of look to and see myself um, modeling after. I had lots of great mentors um, that were men, but I just didn't see a lot of women kind of up ahead of me. Um, From there, I had always had this sort of international interest. I always have thought it's really important to become fluent in in a second language and got a master's in Spanish with that in mind, but always sort of knowing that my ultimate goal was business. And, um, you know, Wharton was the dream, and, and thankfully it worked out. And from there, I went on to BCG. So after Middlebury, did you spend did you spend time back at on Wall Street, or did you go from Middlebury to Wharton? I went straight from Middlebury to Wharton. To Wharton. So the the, uh, the year of the master's degree was a step, sort of knowing that a business an MBA was the the next step. So it was a way that I could make sure that I became really fluent in a language before I sort of got back on the um, the business trajectory. All right, and one maybe one more question, and then I'll make sure Jeff gets in here. Was the was the experience on Wall Street a positive one? Um, absolutely, in a lot of ways. So I learned 
I think that that was a, a great foundation for me. I learned so much about finance. I think understanding finance and understanding the fundamentals of that helps you really understand business broadly. Um, so it was a great experience, and I have lots of uh, friends and mentors that I'm still in touch with today from that experience. Uh, so it wasn't negative in that sense, but I think it would have been stronger if there had just been more diversity in the way, and we were talking about inclusion, sort mm-hmm. of the way you can bring your authentic self Jen, into, I'm gonna, um, into the office. I'm going to break, the, uh, this is Mike, I'm going to break in for just a second to remind listeners that this is Leadership in Action. Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Hussein. I'm with Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein, and we're in an active dialogue now with Jen Garcia Alonso, Global Director of Women at Boston Consulting Group. So, Jen, it's Jeff, and it's, uh, it's great to be in dialogue with you here. Thanks for being on the show with us. Um, one of the reports that, that BCG has just issued, and, and this is part of a, a series of recent BCG publications on, on gender and diversity research, uh, is entitled Fixing the Flawed Approach to Diversity. And within there, I, th- I think one of the most striking conclusions um, or striking pieces of data which you present is you know, the number of companies which have invested in diversity programs, you know, and, and – uh, you know, you're in the 96 to 98 percent range when companies are reporting about whether they've invested in diversity programs. Yet, you know, you're we're we're really seeing uh, reports from employees of diverse groups that only you know roughly a quarter of them are benefiting from those programs. So, can you help us understand um, you know j- just some of the broad broad brushstrokes of where the gap is? Sure. So when you look at who's actually leading these organizations, it's usually not the diverse members of your company. Sure. So it tends to be, just statistically speaking, uh, white, male, heterosexual, over 45 leaders. Yeah, didn't didn't so we just you, see that there are more men named John leading <laughs> Fortune 500 companies than there are women? Exactly. Exactly. So it's a good statistic. And the number's just not moving. You know, it's been yeah. 5%. Sometimes it goes up to 6 Sometimes it goes down to 4 but it's just not moving. Um, so that's exactly right. And then when you look at how um, men over 45 are understanding the obstacles that are that diverse employees are face, facing versus mm-hmm. the actual obstacles that the diverse employees themselves are reporting, there's a huge difference. So, for example, um, men 45 plus see are ranking obstacles like 10 to 15% lower than women are, for example. Mm-hmm. So then you say, okay, well, if you don't really understand the obstacles that women are facing or people of color are facing or LGBTQ people are facing, how can you start to solve the problem? Right, so and the- then you go in the next layer down and you're like, well, the men actually think a lot of the problem just in the way that they're responding to our survey and our research. They think it tends to be a recruiting problem in general, whereas the diverse employees are saying the problem lies elsewhere. So then when programs get formed, that's how they... That's the play out. <clears throat> and, and so much of the report that, that you and your colleagues have worked on here starts to, you know, try to identify a path forward. What are some of the lingering obstacles? What are some of the gaps in awareness uh, that can help to close that gap? Because on one hand, we see an intention, it seems like, from organizations to invest in diversity programs, um, but clearly not getting the outcomes that, that they, and, and more importantly, that members of diverse groups would, would hope for. Um, so help us think then about what's the framework that you use within this report, um, and you know how, how can we, how can some of our listeners start to engage with it? Sure. So we really framed, and when we pulled out the data, there everything fell into three major categories. One was a set of back-to-basics measures that, across all groups, came up in sort of our top five or ten programs that could be implemented across all 31 things we tested. Mm-hmm. So in that back-to-basics group, you see things that are focused on really eliminating bias. So everybody agrees on the importance of eliminating bias, and we can talk about what some of those are. Mm-hmm. Um, And then the second group, going one step further, is what we're calling proven measures. So those are things that, you know, women or people of color or LGBTQ employees are saying are important, and they differ by group. Mm -hmm. 
and the majority tends to understand that those things are important. So one example for women is flexibility programs. Mm -hmm. Women say they're important. Men tend to understand that these are important to them. And then the third, where I think a lot of the real kind of interesting nuggets come out, is this piece called what we're calling hidden gems. And those are things that the diverse employees are ranking as really important to them, but are basically blind spots for people in leadership. So um, diverse employees are ranking them really high, and then people in leadership are ranking them really low on their, on their relevance and their ability to drive change. So we kind of put everything in those three categories based on the research that we did um, and all the data across these 14 countries and these 16,000 respondents and came up with some pretty interesting patterns. Uh, that we outlined in the report. Mm-hmm. And and so if I'm leading an organization and I feel like I'm both in the category of, all right, we're one of the 98% that is trying, um, but at the same time I have a feeling our, our impact is in that 75%, which you know is not having the impact on diverse groups um, that we would hope for, where would you encourage uh, an organization, organizational leader to begin? Um, do you begin with back-to-basics measures? Is it really a, is a combination of um, these three categories? You know, what, what's the first step? Yeah, I think the first step is really these back-to-basics measures because they're really the table stakes. Mm, it's really okay. hard to come to work if you can't, um, if you feel like you're in a continually biased environment. So the three kind of big chunks there that we talk about are anti-discrimination policies. Mm -hmm. A lot of companies have them, but they're not ingrained into the values and the way the leadership communicates, and um, they're not often fully lived. So, um, for example, the HRC came out with a report that said that that while, for example, LGBTQ people see this as part of the anti-discrimination policies, 50% 50% don't think that if they report something, anything will ever come of it. So that's that's one piece there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another piece is um, unconscious bias training, and I think this is something that we all hear a lot about now, but it has to go beyond just the one-time um, trainings that a lot of companies may implement where you have somebody come in and talk about the importance of unconscious bias, and then it's sort of checking the box. Sure. It has to be something that's long-term sustainable um, and implemented into the processes. And then the fine is, third is really using data uh, to remove bias and understand where bias is in your evaluation and promotion decisions. And that's looking through who you're promoting, um, like really on a numbers basis mm-hmm. and, um, and, and how that, how that tracks to performance. Cause often they're honestly not linked. And is, is there an element of uh, sharing that data that's also important when we think about these, these back-to-basics? Is it is executive focus enough? Um, is this the kind of thing that we want to make, we want to raise awareness throughout the employee base? You know, around promotion so, decisions, hiring, things like that. At a, right. So part of it, I think, is the transparency. So at BCG, we talk about... Um, we share numbers with leadership and then we share numbers throughout the organization on relative promotion rates and things like that, which Mm -hmm. I think helps build confidence. Um, But part of it, honestly, is just understanding because if, if this isn't being tracked, then it's even hard to know where bias exists. Right. Right. Uh, Jen, we're about two minutes from a, uh, a breather or a break here, but I want to put an argument in front of us and we can talk through briefly before the break and then after so much research and experience has recurrently confirmed that if you have a more diverse top team, a company does better. If yeah. you've got a product team and you're putting out a new product into the market, if it's more diverse, it does better. If it's a, a board of directors, over time, a more diverse board does better. And yet, you've already referenced the fact that at the top of, the, say, the Fortune 500, uh, the needle has moved a whole lot on that. And I think it, it then speaks to some of the uh, the barriers that are, you uh, reference in your report. And now to be kind of cute with words, do you think it's a matter now if, if performance-wise, <laughs> diversity, inclusion, it's just we know that from so much research that we need to go from unconscious bias to conscious bias? I have to become more conscious about diversity and inclusion. If we are, we're going to get those results. So with about a minute, uh, Jen, before our break, uh, pick up on that, and we'll debate that after the break as well. It is, how, is, how, if it's a 
pretty much a proven case, at least research-wise, yep. that diversity and inclusion yields better business results in, in that particular yep. area. Uh, what do you think at root is required to move us in a direction everybody wants? We just have a hard time getting there. Diversity and inclusion, good for business, good for people. Yep, yep. Okay, so that's the question. Sorry. <laughs> no, I got it. Um, no, so I think part of it is just understanding where what the programs are that are going to really move the needle. A lot of times, you know, what we show in the report is that it's investing in, in a set of programs that aren't actually moving the needle and kind of mismanaging that investment. The other piece is, though, making sure you get that implementation right. So something that we found time and time again with our clients and, you know, with ourselves is that you need to have leadership commitment against this, and it needs to be a core part of the values of the organization. Um, that needs to be tracked, and there needs to be um, accountability and sort of champions also at those mid-layers, too, um, because they're the ones that are from a day-to-day basis are going to live this. Uh, there needs to be programs that kind of move against that, and then you need to track progress over time. All right. That's a great material to come back yes. on. Uh, for listeners out there, I'd like you to think all that through and give us a call after the break. We're at 844-942-7866. Join the dialogue. And we are in dialogue with Jen Garcia-Alonso, who is with uh, Boston Consulting Group. She focuses on diversity and inclusion, as we've been hearing. I'm Mike Uceam. I'm here with Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein. And uh, we're going to be back in just a couple minutes. Don't go away. Business uh, Radio, powered by the Wharton School Leadership in Action, Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Ann Greenhall. Welcome back, everybody, to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I'm your host this evening, Mike Yuseem. I'm here with my friends and colleagues, Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein. They run the McNulty Leadership Program here at the Wharton School. Our guest, we're halfway through a discussion with her now, is Jen Garcia Alonso, who is the Global Director of Women uh, at Boston Consulting Group and the author of a new, really interesting report we've been discussing uh, on or entitled Fixing the Flawed Approach to Diversity. Uh, give us a call, 844-942-7866 is us. Join the dialogue. Jen, to get the dialogue going, I'm going to ask uh, if you could, if you wouldn't mind picking a client, you can obviously leave the client's name out of the discussion, that in your own experience in working with a client did a really good job of addressing diversity and building inclusion. What, what do they do, kind of on the ground, if you don't mind? Sure. So one of the examples that we um, highlight in our report, so I can talk about the name, um, is Unilever. And so they've done a lot of work in North America to promote diversity and inclusion. They have a CEO who's a woman who had spent seven years actually working part-time when she had raised her um, two children, but sort of staying in the, in the organization. So she's been really passionate about the, the topics of gender diversity. Um, and part of what she's done to do that is to elevate the importance of men in the conversation, which has been really um, a game changer for them. So not only are they supporting that with a set of policies, in terms of what the parental leave looks like and what the support looks like for new parents. But the conversations that are happening in the organization are really happening across um, both genders. So, for example, Mm. they recently had a panel on parental leave, and instead of the typical four women and one men on the stage, it was four men and one woman. So kind of flipping some of those conversations and making it Mm -hmm. a safe space for both men and women to interact on the topic. Um, has been one of the ways in which they've been able to to drive change. And, and then there's also a set of um, investments and activities that they put against that and programs that they run and and um, activities that they put against their efforts there, too. You know, a very quick, specific follow-up question on the fact that the chief executive, in this case, is a woman. You mentioned that. And I infer from what you've said is that she's played a critical role in changing the mindset, moving the needle, shifting the culture, uh, yep. uh, and just talk, if you could, if, or maybe describe a couple things she has done in her speeches or messaging or whatever it is that has helped push. Uh, they probably have 100,000 employees and more there at Unilever. 
uh, in the right direction. So one of the things that her employees have said to me and sort of talking to them about this is that she's really um, authentic about the way that she talks about the challenges that she faced. Um, she tells a story about how she went in one day because it, it got really hard and her boss um, figured out a way, way for her to make it work. And she tells that story. Mm. She told that story in a really public forum at the Working Mother Awards last year um, in a big ballroom. And, and she tells that to her employees. Um, she also kind of brings people from different perspectives into these conversations and, and gives them voice, which I think is a, a key thing. She puts it on the leadership agenda at their leadership meetings, too, um, how they're managing their diversity and inclusion agenda. So I think all of those things have kind of made a tangible difference for them. Uh, Jen, uh, in the last uh, uh, half of the hour, you talked about your framework and mentioned uh, three approaches back to basics proven measures, and hidden gems. Following Mike's lead here, can you give us an example of uh, a company that's using a hidden gem? So what is that gem, and how is the company using it? Sure. So part of, for example, um, when you think about the debiasing the data. For, so for LGBTQ employees, part of the hidden gems are really debiasing this day-to-day -day experience and how you feel like the day-to-day -day experience enables you to bring your full self to work. One of the companies um, that's doing this that we highlight in their report is Barclays. And particularly in the UK, they've done a huge um, investment against this. So some specific examples of what those hidden gems look like in practice in terms of structural interventions are things like gender-neutral restrooms, non-binary gender de designations on forms, whereas that might not apply to sort of every LGBTQ person that is um, within the company, sort of acknowledgement of the fact that that is a difference that's accepted and valued and, and, um, and welcome has helped people feel like they can bring their, their full selves to work. Part of what they've done, too, that I think is really interesting is not only have they done that internally, but they've done that externally in terms of the way that they enable their customers to fill out forms and and come into their organization. Mm, that's so great. Sort of both internally and externally facing, which makes everybody feel like part of it. Very good. And earlier you mentioned proven measures. And so, for example, flexibility <clears throat> mattered to women. Can you give uh, an example of that? Sure. So flexibility programs um, can really manifest themselves in three ways. It's when you work, where you work, and how much you work. So lots of companies put flexibility programs out there. I think the challenge is making sure that they're mainstreamed and not sort of for only new moms or making sure that they're not only for a certain type of employee. Um, so one of the things that actually we've tried to do at BCG is engage the broader organization in these. So there's not only one reason to take flexibility. There's a number of heads of our offices around the world that are on different flexibility programs and not only enabling people to take those, but spotlighting those stories so that people who are on those programs are role models and people see a path forward for them um, within those programs, the trade-off becomes slightly different. You don't feel like you have to be either full-time or nothing. You can be flexible for a certain amount of time if you are, if that's something that you feel like you need in this example for women, because that's where it came up in the survey, but, um, but really for anybody. Mm. I really like the way you put that because that we've had lots of conversations about that uh, here at Wharton in the leadership program, when, where, and how much. Do you have, um, just in your experience, what would you say the chief um, uh, obstacles are to instituting a flexible, flexible flex, flexibility in the workplace? So a lot of it tends to be buy-in. So even if you have a formalized program, the organizational buy-in from especially middle management but also leadership that this is something that you can viably do and still succeed and add value is the key thing. So part of it is um, not only kind of spotlighting stories but making sure that the way that you're reviewing talent and promoting talent is consistent with the programs that you've set up. So is there a legitimate way to be promoted while you're on a flexible work program? Um, is there, 
are your reviews and your way that you're um, evaluating your talent, evaluating output or FaceTime and all of the kind of different ways that that can run through the way that you're um, working with your people is a really key thing to put in place. So it's not just sort of having a nominal program, but also thinking through all of the different ways that that program will play out um, throughout the organization and then also how you market it. Oh, that's great. And uh, now just in your description, you're reminding me of a phrase I haven't heard in a, in a while, which is probably a good thing. But, Mike, you might remember this expression. Uh, people used to talk about the mommy track. Hmm. And so there, to have flexibility in the workplace and at the same time make sure that those who opt for flexibility are not marginalized or not out of yeah. the running for uh, promotion and advancement makes a lot of sense. All right, one more, and then I promise Jeff gets in here. On the back to basics, uh, we talked about unconscious bias and um, having that be not just a one-off program. So, again, very thoughtful about this because this is something that runs through our curriculum here at Wharton. And so we're mindful of, you know, how to go about um, facilitating conversation about this topic. So best, maybe a best case example where unconscious bias is more than a one-off program. Sure. So one of the things that um, we found to be important is... First of all, having a conversation up front that everybody has bias is part of how the brain is wired. Mm -hmm. So then it kind of naturally brings people into the conversation more open-minded about the fact that this is uncovering what my specific biases are, understanding that every single person sitting here has a bias um, that might be different than mine that has a bias, and that over time we're going to track how that might be manifesting itself in the way that I'm interacting at work. So having a series of conversations over time um, and a training that is actionable and linked to the way that that particular organization operates is really important. The other thing that we found to be important, at least internally for us, is backing that up with a separate program that's related called Authentic Conversations, mm. where there are sort of hard-hitting topics that are moderated by a trained facilitator um, that are chosen by the group to engage on a deeper level on how different topics might be impacting them, um, both inside and outside of the workplace, which just makes people more sort of comfortable with difference. And that's often, it's not required, but sort of continuing to create that safe space is something that is a series that continues the conversation. So what, what might be a topic? Um, so there's different things around how... Um, Differences evaluated, for example, are differences sort of expected within a meeting context, um, how people might be interrupted or not interrupted, to harder things that might be happening in society um, when you see kind of race-driven violence or anything else and how that might be affecting people. That's great. Well, thank you, <laughs> Jeff. <clears throat> and so, Jen, I think as as we think across the spectrum of you know, different programs and different initiatives that organizations can invest in. Um, how would how would you recommend that they measure impact or measure effectiveness? Like, what what does success look like for these organizations? So we think about it in two ways, and part of what our survey tests. We talk more in this report about what are the programs and policies, but there's really two things that we're kind of looking to move the needle, both internally and then when we work with our clients. Mm-hmm. One is just measuring your organization's diversity across a number of dimensions. Um, And we think about it in terms of recruiting, retention, advancement, and satisfaction. Mm -hmm. So that kind of entire life cycle and and how diverse are you at each of those different points? Who are you bringing in? Who's deciding to stay or leave? And who's getting promoted? Mm -hmm. The other piece is around inclusion and how people are feeling. And there are ways that you can test that through surveys and... um, and kind of pulse-checking your people. Mm-hmm. Lots of organizations do employee surveys, as you know, um, annually, and so you can test things in that survey. I feel um, that I can bring my authentic self to work. I feel like I can be myself at work. I feel like my opinions are valued and listened to. That's all around sort of inclusion and how people are feeling um, mm-hmm. in their work environments. And you can then look at that by different groups, different diverse groups. You can look at that by department, by geography, by sort of anything you want, and that's kind of really telling data that helps move the needle um, as you devise programs and where you're going to spend your time and how you're going to make it better for people. 
And and when when you look at those two kind of outcome measurements, one around diversity and one around inclusion, and and I realize I am way oversimplifying a um, a very complex topic here, but do you see correlation between the two when when there is change and and, and firms start to measure you know both these recruiting retention advancement satisfaction as well as some of the the employee reported inclusion measures you do because usually as you have more inclusion people want to stay and feel like they have the tools to perform their best and get promoted so you do tend to see them, and what we've seen is you tend to see them go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. I will say it's not an immediate change, so it takes um, time and patience to, to make those, to be able to see that in a tangible way. Yeah, and, and quicker to see diversity, and then it is to see inclusion. Great. Um, I was going to ask that. I mean, it, w- it would seem like inclusion would have the longer tail of the two. Yes, that's exactly right. And as you have diversity and you're working in a, in a team... Um, I think by definition, you start to get more inclusion because there's more points of difference sitting around the table, mm-hmm. um, which helps too. Uh, by the way, I just, uh, Jen, want to make note of the fact that uh, everybody is listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We're on channel 132 of Sirius XM. I'm Mike Yusim. I'm here in the studio with Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein. And we are nearing the end of our long discussion of extremely interesting discussion with our guest this hour, Jen Garcia Alonso, Global Director of Women at Boston Consulting Group. Got a few minutes. If you want to come into our dialogue, you know where to reach us, 844-WHARTON, W-H-A-R-T-O-N, on your dial there. That said, uh, Jen, we're going to begin to wrap up with a, a couple kind of pulling a lot of themes together kinds of questions. One question is this. As you've been in dialogue with many people, both within BCG and many of your clients, to what extent are they more drawn in the direction that you'd like them to go by arguments of fairness and equity? Everybody deserves a fair chance to achieve versus a, call it a more pragmatic business argument that Diversity, regardless of your ethical values, actually, uh, and inclusion, got to have them both, uh, tends to produce stronger results. So which of those seems to be more effective as you have been in dialogue with your clients? Honestly, I would say the, the business results. I think everyone wants to do what's right, but the fact that it produces better results has been a huge motivator. I think you can argue on equity, um, that it's the right thing to do, but at the end of the day, businesses are motivated and they're trying to not only talk to one leader, but an entire set of organizations or a set of people within an organization who are measured on their ability to um, produce results and drive value and have, you know, return that, um, that business case is a, is a real motivator. Jenna, a quick follow-up on that. Uh, I'm, let's say I'm a, a business leader, a chief executive of a, of a, fairly small firm, maybe 100 employees. Uh, I've heard what you said about Unilever, about Barclays, very large companies. I've got to get my own act together, but I don't know where to begin. So I've called uh, you, Jen. Uh, How do I start thinking about strengthening diversity and inclusion to go with that? What advice would you have? So for smaller companies, I think in some ways – a lot of the work is around driving the culture from the top. It's a, it, as a leader, you can be one that actually creates that environment of inclusion and values that difference. Um, you are able to make hiring decisions, so you're able to, to think about who you bring into the organization, and not only are they diverse, but what values do they represent, and, and do they share these kind of values around diversity and, and inclusion and um, listening to different perspectives. Um, and then thinking through, I would be pretty tactical around what are the two or three programs that your own employees really value. And if you're thinking about small companies that are 100 people that have a specific mission, those are going to vary by company, um, depending on what they're trying to do and what stage of growth they're in and what their um, their ultimate mission is. So thinking through kind of what their employees need and, and what specifically um, would be valuable to them, even through a survey, could be a really helpful way to get started. That's great. We've got about two minutes. I know Ann and Jeff have a final question for you here. Jen, we've talked mainly about fixing the flawed approach to diversity. Just one word on what can millennial men do to help break the glass ceiling? Hmm. 
<laughs> well, one of the really interesting things that we found in our research that actually millennial men are the most in tune with the um, with the views of the diverse employees. So I talked hmm. in the beginning about this 10 to 15 percent gap between older men that tend to be leading organizations and then um, the various diverse groups that we talk about. But millennial men actually seem to understand the obstacles. Hmm. So they're they're pretty closely aligned. So see, Mike, there's hope. Yeah. Uh, well, as, I knew there was. Is, Absolutely. Mike... And, <laughs> Go ahead, and sort of my view at first was like, well, maybe that's because they're in the same stage of life and they sort of feel it. Yeah. Maybe they are having children. Mm. Maybe they are kind of facing this bias because they're younger in the organization. But it's actually true regardless of their marital status, yeah. regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of um, whether or not they're part of a dual career couple. So it seems like that's a generation that tends to understand and can be real allies and advocates for change. That's great. And I also think it's important that we have identified Mike Yusin as one of the ultimate millennial men. This I, I, is I told, true. I want to be in that category. I mean, Write that down, would you? I just need to tell you, Mike, that when you when you hit your thirties, yeah, yeah, I know, like things start I, to change. I know it's a you're, stretch. You're, you got to take better yeah, care yeah. of your body. <laughs> I just want you to know all those things. Good advice to this rising millennial. Uh, we're gonna, uh, Jen. We're gonna do a after action review in about a minute. But uh, let's squeeze in one more question from Jeff, and then we're going to wrap up. All right. Thanks, Mike. Um, Jen, one of the things that I uh, was really struck by in the report was it, it seems like one of the arguments here, one of the things that you, you found within your data is that the, the awareness gap uh, for women has closed some in the, in the last few years, whereas some of the awareness um, gap between for people of color or for LGBTQ versus the the dominant kind of white male um, you know perspective has not closed as much and so you know how, how do you hypothesize why that's changing and what does it suggest for ways that we might be able to close the gap for people of color and, and different sexual orientation yeah, so we saw that, and, you know, we, we can't say directly from the data why that's happened. Mm -hmm. um, we did a similar survey a couple of years ago, and there was a bigger gap. I would say that a lot of the attention in the press around um, the obstacles that women mm -hmm. face, the, mm -hmm. most the most obvious view is this kind of Me Too movement where people, I think, were blindsided by the extent to which this was a pervasive um, problem. Mm -hmm. Really drew people's attention to the fact that, wow, this is really hard for women and they must face obstacles. Um, when you go a layer down from that, the majority group doesn't necessarily understand specifically where the obstacles lie, but at least they kind of understand that obstacles exist. Sure. Um, the gap for, you know, as you said, for race and ethnicity and LGBTQ continues to be pretty large. So by hopefully um, drawing more light to those topics just in the popular press and the media and in the way that we all um, interact in the workplace, we'll hopefully start to, to close that gap more and more. Um, hopefully it won't take something as drastic as Me Too to make that happen. But I think by continuing to shine a light on some of the challenges that are faced by these groups, hopefully we can make some change there too. Jen, that's a great note to end on. I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, but before we sign off with you, uh, you've got uh, oh, at least six reports that we've had uh, by title in front of us, each of them with a really interesting and appealing and pragmatic title, like getting the most from your diversity dollars. My final question here is, how do people learn more about you, about Boston Consulting Groups, and can they get a, a Boston Consulting Group, and how can they get a hold of these uh, BCG studies that you've co-authored on the topics we've been referencing? That is a great question. So bcg.com is the uh. website. Um, within the capabilities section on the main navigation, diversity and inclusion is one of the key capabilities that is listed there. And within that, you can find our reports under latest thinking. So there is a, a full link to all of those reports and then me as well as my colleagues that think about this and do this um, as our key kind of focus are listed there so you can get in touch with any of us there too. All right, Jen, that is great. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right. As thank alumna especially, it's an honor. Okay, oh, it's you. an honor to have you. So, Jen, <laughs> thanks very much. All right, lady and gentlemen in this room, right. we have about two minutes here for uh, an extra after action review, which just to say it again, what, what are the, uh, why we do it, what are the main points we really yeah. want to hang on to? So, Anne, do you want to start? Sure. Then, Jeff? Sure. Uh, just very briefly, I think the conversation with Jen reminds me of the importance to make of making what is implicit explicit. Uh. 
and that's for ourselves. So to be thoughtful about the biases that we all have and to simply recognize them. And then as an organization to, uh, you know, recognize our, our culture, our patterns of behavior, and to try to be as intentional as we can on the topics of di diversity and inclusion. So walk the walk and talk the talk. Super, super. Jeff? Yeah, I think, you know, the conversation with Jen for me reinforced um, how important it is not only to measure, but to to really understand the relationships between measures. You know, and so I, I thought the question that she raised that said, okay, you know, the workforce may put in flexible working practices, right? And, and we believe that mm -hmm. will help with retention. And many studies have shown it does help with retention. Um, but the, there's a second order question, which is, all right, for the people that are in that flexible working arrangement, um, yes, they may stay with the company longer. Do they still have the same kind of promotion and advancement uh, opportunities right. as people that are right. that are outside of that program as well? And so really trying to link programs to multiple sets of measures. And I thought that, you know, on the diversity front, the framework that she offered, measuring recruitment, retention, advancement, and satisfaction, uh, is a really fantastic place to start. Mm. And Anne and Jeff, see if we end uh, on a shared optimistic note as follows. Uh, Jen has made a very compelling case for thinking about diversity, developing and inclusion for business results, mm -hmm. but also for issues of integrity and fairness. And I think we all accept all the above. And having said that, with the example she's referenced and some of the illustrations that she brought in and we, we know as well, uh, I think the world is moving slowly, unsteadily, but roughly correctly in the right direction. If you think about our own student body here, uh, 25 years ago was predominantly U.S. white men, mm -hmm. extremely diverse as we began at the top of the program here. So I guess to give that a final question as we are just about to sign off, uh, are we all of the optimistic mind here or mode that these programs can make a difference, should make a difference. We just got to make them happen. What do you think, Jeff? I am eternally optimistic. Okay. <laughs> uh. I'm optimistic too, Mike. And I uh, have reason to be optimistic on two points. Jeff asked a great question about the relationship between diversity and inclusion. And Jen answered that they tend to go hand in hand mm -hmm. with inclusion having the longer tail. And the other reason for optimism is uh, the millennial, upcoming millennial male. Yeah, right. And as Good Jen data. said, you know, having men and women together in this conversation is super yeah. important and having... Um, young men in particular being aware and open and willing to act is fabulous. Well, see if this sounds right, Anne. Is that leadership in action? It is leadership oh, okay. in action. <laughs> and, <laughs> Thank you, and Mike. It, it also means, Mike, the, the world's in your hands here. <laughs> okay. With 60 seconds to go, I'll see if I can give it a final spin. Go for it, uh, Mike. <laughs> want to thank everybody for joining us. You know, of course, that you can reach us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We're on Twitter as well. Special thanks to our guest, Jen Garcia-Alonso of the Boston Consulting Group. We always want to thank our outstanding producer, Patty Hall, and our excellent sound engineer, Jeff Simmons. You've been hearing from Jeff uh, from time to time and the music that he's about to, uh, we're about to hear yet again. Uh, I'm Mike Usain. You've been listening to Leadership in Action. I'm here with Anne, my good friend, Anne Greenhall, and Jeff Klein, my good friend, on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We are Sirius XM Channel 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.